0: so good to be with you guys today, and like Nikki said, we're in week four of this series called Hidden Heroes, where we're looking at some of the untold stories, specifically in the Old Testament book of Judges. Now, as we get into today, I want to ask you a question. How many of you, you might consider yourself a control freak? Any control freaks in the room? If you find yourself wanting to lift the hand of someone close to you, this is for you, right? That's... Like yeah, you, I, I'll, I'll put my hand up. I'm a self-professed, self-proclaimed control freak, right? But, but what I've come to realize is that actually, all of us like to be in control in some area of our lives, even if we don't like to be in control of every area. We all have something, guys. Maybe for you, it's like your work, like you in control at work. It's your way or the highway. You're not like really open to like debate or negotiating, like you're in control or or maybe for perhaps it's not work for you but it's like it's it's home like at home you just do what i say right you like to be in control of that whole home environment maybe maybe it's not home but maybe for you you like to be in control of the remote control or or you like to be in control of your finances or in control of your kids or in control of your future or in control of your investments like there's all these things is different things in our lives that we just like to be in control of. My daughter, Emma, she's 18 and she's busy learning how to drive. And and I've learned something about myself as I really like to be in control of the car. Right, and like we're going for like, she, she has these turns driving and I just find myself like holding the dashboard like, and she gets so irritated. She's like, dad, stop doing that. We're only, only going like 20 Ks an hour, but I'm like, <laughs> right, just... I just, I just realized like when it comes to driving, I like to be in control. And so there are these areas that, that we like to control and these areas we might be more relaxed with. But here's the thing that happens actually when we become Christians. What's supposed to happen when we become followers of Jesus is <sighs> what's meant to happen is God is supposed to be in control of everything. Like what's meant to happen in our walk with God is He He is now in control of our whole lives of, of everything, and when I when I say everything, I mean everything, Alice. Like God is meant to be in control, but a, a big part of our walk with God is that there's this tug of war. And if you felt it, I'm sure you have. Where there are these things where you're just struggling to give God control, like you you're struggling to allow Him to really sit on the throne to drive the car, right? To be in the driver's seat, just struggling. I don't know, here's some examples. Maybe for you, it's like in the area of your bitterness. It's like, you know, God God wants to be in control. He wants you to release that. He wants you to deal with the offense. He, He wants you to forgive the person, but you just are not letting God get in the driver's seat. Like, I will not forgive that person. I'm sure God understands because of what they did to me. Right, and so, and so you, you're in control. Maybe for you, it's like in your in the area of your money. <laughs> you want to know if someone is allowing God to be in control? Wait till God touches their wallet. Woo! They say that the last thing to get saved is your wallet. Right, because it, it takes a while, like... Sometimes like, God, we, we, we know that God always uses his people to fund his kingdom and that he wants us to do that, but it's like there's this tug of war, right? It's like, God, I, just, I want to put you in the throne of my life, but maybe not in this area. And yet what we're going to find out today through the story is that when we don't put God in control of something, it always turns out bad. It turns out you and I are not good at being in control. Why don't you bless someone with that encouragement? Look someone in the eyes and say, you're not good at being in control. And you might not believe this because you love control, but I promise you guys, things go wrong when you're in control. Things almost always end in tragedy when you are in control. We're going to find Israel now in the book of Judges chapter 9. We're going to find them struggling for control. They want control. In fact, they're, they're petitioning to have a king. And God is like, you don't need a king. I'm your king. But they're like, no, we want an earthly king. We want to be like those people. We want to be like those nations. We want to have a people we can influence. We want to be in control of our own destiny. And so Israel is pushing for a king. And so this allows a gap, a vacuum in power where someone is able to rise up and claim Israel for themselves. And the person that rises up goes by the name Abimelech. Can you all say Abimelech? Now, who is this guy, Abimelech? Well, it turns out Abimelech is a son of Gideon. Remember Gideon from last week, right? He's one of Gideon's sons. Now, what happened and how did this kind of all happen? Well, Gideon started out as a really good judge. He started out really good, but then towards the end of his life, ah, things get a bit iffy. It turns out that after Gideon defeated the Midianites, the people of Israel came to Gideon and said, Would you be our king? We want you. We want you to be our king. And Gideon says, No, I'm not going to be your king. And neither are my children. Like me and my kids, we will not rule Israel. We will not be the king. But somehow in Gideon's heart towards the end of his life, things started to drift. Because even though he said he didn't want to be king, he was living exactly like a king. Like he was collecting money from the people and he was collecting royal jewelry and royal clothing and he started marrying many women. He, he lived just like a king. In fact, he married so many women that he ended up having 70 children. Well, 70 sons, not children, sons. 70, like seven zero. Now, let this be the day that you, you stop commenting on my large family. I only... I only have seven kids, okay? Gideon had 70. 70 sons. It's crazy. And, and, and really when we get a sense of how, how far Gideon had moved from God's heart is that one of the women he marries is this woman from a town or city of Shemech. In fact, it was a pagan place. And so he marries this woman who's... Not from Israel who doesn't love God. He marries a pagan woman and they have a child together by the name of Abimelech. Now, <laughs> guess what Abimelech means? The name Abimelech means, my father is the king. Here is Gideon who said, by the way, I don't wanna be king. Like years later, he, he, he has a child and he chooses to name him, hey, my father is the king. You, can you see the shift in Gideon's heart? In fact, we're going to find the Bible does something very interesting, and from the book of Judges chapter 9, the Bible changes how it refers to Gideon and no longer calls him Gideon. From Judges chapter 9, the Bible starts referring to Gideon by his pagan name, Jerubbabel. And so it just changes even what it calls him. It's a sneaky little trick in the Bible, right, because it's showing us the change of Gideon's heart. He's gone back to his pagan practices, in other words. He's. He's fallen in love with something else. And so he's called not by Gideon any, anymore. He's now called by Jerubbabel, his pagan name. So we're going to find this all play out in the book of Judges chapter 9, where we're introduced to this man called Abimelech. Let's join there. If you have your Bibles, I'd love you to join me in Scripture. And we're going to read from verse 1 today. It says this. Now, Abimelech, the son of Jerubbabel, which we now know is actually Gideon, right? The Bible doesn't call him Gideon anymore went to Shechem, to his mother's relatives, and said to them and the whole clan of his mother's family, Say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, Which is better for you, that all 70 of the sons of Jerubbabel rule over you, or that one rule over you? Remember also that I am the bone of your flesh. And his mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in the ears of all the leaders in Shechem and their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, he is our brother. Now, Abimelech, what does he do? He starts a campaign, right? He goes back to the people of Shechem, and he starts to whisper, hey, through his mother, they start this campaign. Who would you rather have leading us? All 70 of the children, or the sons of Gideon, or just me? Just me, the guy who's from your town. Just me, the guy who's related to you. Just, just me, the guy who's got your back and will promote your interests. Like who would you rather have lead us? The 70 sons of Gideon or, or me, your mate? And this campaign starts to take off and it starts to influence the people of Shechem. Now it's really interesting because all the judges before this, when you look at like Deborah and Ehud and Gideon, those were men and women appointed by God. But now, Abimelech, he's appointing himself. He's trying to establish for himself his own kingdom, his own monarchy. And why does he do this? Well, really the root of this is pride and selfishness. He wants a kingdom for himself. And guys, can I just say, if we had to be really honest, is... Very often in our own lives, where we, where in the areas where we are not giving God control, it's because of the same two things. Because of pride and selfishness. In the areas where we're not giving God control, it's like, it's because we're too worried about ourselves and we're too worried about our interests. And, and when your needs are more important to you than the needs of God, you will never give up control. I mean, just think about this, like, that's what some of you, you're scared to go all in for God. Because you're like, what will he do with my life? Like, you're scared to go all in because what if God makes me a missionary in Ethiopia and for the rest of my life I have to use a long drop and I don't have power? Like, you're like, you're just scared. You're, you're scared to go all in. You're like, what if I, what if I tell all the people in my office about Jesus, are like what if I invite everyone at work to church and now they think I'm a religious nut and I've lost my reputation and oh, I don't know. And so what do we do? We hold on to control because of the same two reasons that Abimelech did. We have pride and there's selfishness in our lives. And we're gonna see that Abimelech doing this, man, him holding on to these things, it causes chaos, it just ends badly. So let's carry on with the story in verse four says, and they gave him Abimelech, who's they? Well, it's the leaders of Shechem. They gave Abimelech 70 pieces of silver out of the house of Balberith, with which Abimelech hired worthless. Everyone say worthless. And reckless, say reckless. Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. In other words, now he's got staff. I do want to say you have to be pretty terrible for the Bible to call you worthless and reckless, but we're going to discover later on that actually these guys are like hired murderers. I mean, these are bad, bad people, and it shows us something, guys. When we're doing something because we're controlling our lives and we're not quite interested with what God wants to do, sometimes we can find ourselves being supported by people. But even though there are people around you that are supporting your bad behavior, it doesn't mean that God is in agreement as well. And you could probably find anyone, you can always, if you look hard enough, you could probably find someone to support your bad behavior. Like if you look hard enough, you could probably find someone who's in agreement with your sin. Abimelech did. He found himself surrounded by these people who supported his bad behavior. Listen, support in your life for what you're doing, popular opinion in your life about what you're doing, does not equal God's support. Those two things are very different. You might find someone who is fully in support of your affair. That doesn't mean God is. You might find voices around you who are supportive of you leading your ma- your, your marriage. It doesn't mean God is. You could find people who are happy to get drunk with you every weekend and they normalize it in your life. Uh, you, if you look hard enough, you'll find people who are, who... Fully agree that you can worship both Jesus and the ancestors. You just got to look and you can find people to support almost any behavior in your life. You, you look hard enough and you'll find people who, who say, no, it's just, man, it's old fashioned not to have sex before marriage. Come on, we live in 2022 now. But I want to remind you that just because you got some support, it doesn't mean you have God's support. Just because something might become popular doesn't mean God's in on it. Abimelech finds himself surrounded by people who are supporting him because they're getting something out of it. And in fact, they're influencing him to do something terrible. And we're going to read a verse now that I think is one of the most evil, tragic, sad, disgusting verses in all of Scripture. And it's in Judges chapter 9, verse 5. It says this. And he, Abimelech, went to his father's house at Oprah, and he killed his brothers, the sons of Jerubbabel, 70 men on one stone. Wow. (laughs) What kind of evil is this? Abimelech takes all his brothers, 70 brothers, puts them one by one, their heads on a stone, and beheads them on the same stone, one by one by one by one, and he does it 70 times until no brothers are left. Do you see how dark and corrupted he became? Sometimes when we have supportive voices for our bad behavior, It pushes us to do things we never thought we were capable of. Abimelech murders all his brothers. Now, I know some of you have had fights with your brothers and sisters, but hopefully you have never felt like taking an axe to their neck. And if you have, come for prayer after the experience, please. We'd love to pray for you. But ultimately, guys, God, (laughs) he... He wants to be in control to protect us from this. Because when there is a lack of control in our life, look what happens. It 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 drives us towards death. And maybe it wouldn't be physical death in your case, but certainly it's relational death, spiritual death, emotional death. How do you know if God is in control of your relationships? Well, they'll be marked by God. In other words, they'll be marked by love, kindness. Servanthood, selflessness. How do you know that God is not in control of your relationships? Well, it will be marked by the same things. Other people will be a threat to you. You'll struggle to support them. You'll struggle to celebrate their successes. You'll struggle to rise others up in case their light dims your light. It sets your heart against people. Your relationships get marked by envy and jealousy and hate, and strife, and conflict, your relationships die. That's a good way to see whether God's in control of your relationships or not. What is it marked by? Because Abimelech's relationships with his brothers was clearly not marked by God. And it led to death. But ultimately, God still had a plan. Look at someone and say, God still had a plan. He always does, by the way, <laughs> because uh, he's God. And so in the end of verse 5, it says this, But Jotham, everyone say Jotham, the youngest son of Jerubbabel, in other words, Abimelech's youngest brother, he was left. He wasn't killed, for he hid himself. Somehow he escaped in all that chaos and managed to hide himself, and they didn't notice that Jotham was hiding. Verse 6, And all the leaders of Shechem came together, and all of Beth Bethmelo, and they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar of Shechem." Now, yeah, all the leaders come together and all of Beth Malo, they come and they perform this coronation where they make Abimelech king of Israel, completely out of God's will, right? Completely functioning on their own. And what's significant is that this place where they are choosing to coronate Abimelech, it's a significant place. In fact, if you look in the chapter beforehand in Joshua chapter 24, you'll find that this is the place where Joshua stood in front of Israel. And he said these words at the city of Shechem. He says, You choose today who you will serve. You cannot serve both God, our God, and those idols. As for me and my house we will serve the Lord. It was at Shechem that the people of Israel said, we choose God. It was at Shechem that the people of Israel said, we forsake our idols. We choose the Lord God Almighty. And it's at the same place now where they are eating their words because it's now at this place where they are standing in complete defiance of God and His will. God is no longer in control. God brings him back, I think, to the same place to just show the contrast of how quickly our hearts can wander when he's no longer in control. How one day we can be fully in and say, God, I choose you, but we start giving control back to ourselves and we find ourselves at the same place saying, God, I'm going to be in complete defiance of you. If you wonder how your heart drifts like that, it's because we take back control. Here, Abimelech is anointed king of Israel, appointed by the people of Shechem. And in verse seven, it says, when it was told to Jotham, so when it was told to him that they had made Abimelech king, Jotham went and stood up on Mount Gerizim, and he cried out aloud and said to them, Listen to me, you leaders of Shechem, that God may listen to you. Here he goes up on the, on the, on the top of Mount Gerizim, which is a significant place because, for one, it's a natural amphitheater. Even if you go there today, you, you'll be able to shout, and many people will be here. You, you, there's great acoustics there. Your voice travels, but it's significant for another reason. If you look again in the book before, in Judges chapter eight, Mount Gerizim played a significant role in the nation of Israel. In fact, we see that some of the six of the leaders would stand on Mount Gerizim, and six of the leaders would stand on Mount Ebal, and the leaders on Mount Gerizim would lead out and read out the blessings of God. That if you obey God, these would be the blessings, and the leaders. <laughs> who stood on the mountain of a bell would read out the curses of God, that if you disobey him, this will be the curse, the consequence. And so here, Jotham is standing on the mountain of obedience, speaking again to the nation of Israel. And he's saying, will you listen to God? He's reminding them because of where he's standing, that if you listen, there's blessings. But if you don't, there's curses. And Jotham goes on to really share the first parable recorded in Scripture. A parable is where we use a physical object as a story to illustrate a spiritual purpose. Jotham here, who becomes our hidden hero in this story, shares the first parable in the Bible and it goes like this. From verse 8. The trees once went out to anoint a king over them, and they said to the olive tree, reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, shall I leave my abundance by which gods and men are honored and go hold sway over the trees? And the tree said to the fig tree, will you come and reign over us? But the fig tree said to them, shall I leave my sweetness and my good fruit and go hold sway over the trees? And the tree said to the vine, will you come and reign over us? But the vine said to them, shall I leave my, my wine that Cheers God and men and go hold sway over the trees. Then all the trees said to the bramble. <laughs> Do you know what the bramble is? It's a tumbleweed, right? It's, it's the thorn trees. It's the bushes. They go to this tumbleweed and they say, well, you come and reign over us. And the bramble said to the trees, well, if in good faith you're anointing me king over you, then come and take refuge in my shade, which is itself a little bit of shade because bramble doesn't have shade. But if not, if you haven't appointed me as king in good faith, let fire, everyone say fire, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. Sure. Here's this picture, this parable that's been told to us. And in this parable, Gideon is the olive tree and his legitimate sons are the vine tree and the fig tree. Now, Gideon and his sons had rejected leadership of Israel. Even though they came and asked them to be king, they had rejected this position of power and influence. And it's a good reminder to you and I that not every opportunity, not every open door is a door God wants us to go through. That sometimes a promotion can actually be a demotion. If God is not in it, that promotion is a demotion. Gideon knew it, his sons knew it. You might be looking at a position thinking, oh, I really want that. I want that. I want to be that. I want to get that job. I want to get that promotion. But listen, if God is not in it, you better still pray through it. Because if God isn't in it, that promotion becomes a demotion. You do not want to be in that position without the will and blessing of God. So here Gideon and his sons reject this notion of them being king because they knew God was king. And so they go to the tumbleweed king. They go to the brumble king, Abimelech. Abimelech, he agrees to be king. And, and really what he says is that if this is fitting and this was a good appointment, then celebrate with Abimelech. But if this is a bad appointment and if this is not in God's will, may fire consume you. And actually, he was prophesying in that moment. Because you're going to see later on that fire does consume them. And then he doubles down on this message. This younger brother standing on the mountain doubles down on the message. And in the following verses, he goes through it again. And he says, if this is a good appointment, if this is in God's will, if God is in control here, celebrate with the Abimelech. But if he's not in control, you're going to be consumed by the fire, destroyed by the fire. And then after saying this, it tells us that Jotham fled to Beer. Now, he didn't flee to have a beer. Right. He fled to Beer, which just literally means a well, and he goes into hiding. But Abimelech keeps ruling for three years, even after this prophecy was spoken. He he he's still in power. He's still king over Israel for three whole years, and you can almost imagine Jotham and all this time is like waiting. Right? He's just like waiting. Like God, we spoke. I was on that mountain, remember, the acoustics were good. And I was like speaking and I felt your presence, but it's not happening, God. It's not happening, it's not happening. Have you ever felt that with God? Like, God, I'm sure I heard your voice. Like, I'm sure that prophecy was true. I'm sure that word spoken over me, like I I knew it, but God, when's it gonna happen? You can imagine Jonathan in these three years, like every New Year's, he's like, wow, we made it again. And Bimelech's still king, he's still king. Well, I want to remind you guys, when you look through Scripture, there is often a massive gap between the prophecy and the fulfillment of that prophecy. It's kind of how God works, right? And that waiting period can be beautiful. It can grow your faith. But you look through Scripture, you look at the Abrahams of the Bible and the Noahs of the Bible, I promise you, sometimes God gives us the prophecy so that we would endure the waiting. And so here he is, he's busy waiting, and he's waiting, and he's waiting, and he's waiting for God's perfect timing, because how many of you know God's timing is actually perfect? And we're going to see God step into the story now, and I love how God steps in, because it reminds us that even though Abimelech thought he was in charge, really, he wasn't. At the very most, guys, we can try control a little piece of our lives, but that's it. The one who is actually in control is God. So you may as well give him control anyway. Because he's already in control. Like he, and he doesn't just control physical things. He even controls spiritual things. There's nothing God cannot control. and So we're going to see God do something really interesting here. In verse 23, God steps in and starts to change the whole story. It says in verse 23, And God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. And the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech. Hmm. God sent an evil spirit. I know that kind of gets curious for you, doesn't it? Well, let me just be frank. God is not the author of evil, but there is nothing he can't command. There is nothing he has no control over. He is sovereign in the world, in the universe, in in this realm and the spiritual realm. He's sovereign. We even see in 1 Samuel 16 how he sends a spirit to go and disturb Saul, right? And what does this spirit do, this evil spirit? It starts to cause division between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. The very people who appointed him, there start to be tension in this relationship. Actually, the people of Shechem start to steal from Abimelech. Start to steal from him. And then they start talking amongst themselves. Why are we following this guy? Why did we make him the king? Why did we make him the leader? And all of this division and strife is caused by the evil spirit that God sent. Isn't that crazy? Do you know that demonic activity can do that to your relationships, by the way? People who were once in unity are now against each other. People who were once partners are now enemies. Sometimes that can be a sign of demonic activity. Sometimes that's something you need to pray against. Your battle is not against flesh and blood. It's against the rulers and principalities of this unseen world. And so here we see demonic activity causing strife between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. And you might be looking at this and saying, why would God do that? Like, why is God causing division between these people? Well, scripture tells us why. I love that it lets us into the motives of God in verse 24. It says that the violence done to the 70 sons of Jerubbabel might come and that their blood may be laid on Abimelech, their brother, who killed them, and on the men of Shechem, who strengthened his hands to kill his brothers. Turns out the violence done against Gideon's sons did not go unpunished by God. God ultimately has a just and a right way to deal with all the injustices we see. And this gives me great comfort, church. As I look at this world, sometimes I can be very bothered by the injustice I see, by the slavery and the human trafficking and the war and Russia and the Ukraine and, you know, child slavery and abortions and immorality. And you you just see, like, you just see stuff in the world that can bother you, right? You sometimes think, God, like, How's this going to end? Well, I want to remind you, God is in control. He is a just and a fair God. And he has a way of dealing righteously with everything. You don't have to get involved. You can pray into it. But ultimately, vengeance is the Lord's, right? He has a way of setting things right. He's, he's incredible like that. And so in this story, God stirs the pot of conflict between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. And, and things start falling apart for them. Things go really bad. Listen. Can I remind you, Abimelech is not the kind of guy you want to pick a fight with. For goodness sake, he murdered 70 of his brothers. Do you think he's not going to come after you? Like this is a guy, you, you, don't, want to, you don't want him to find out you've been talking behind his back, right? I mean, you don't want this guy, he, he's, he's psycho. But Abimelech, he hears what Shekem is doing. He hears that they're stealing from him. He hears that they're talking smack behind his back. And so he takes his men these hired men, and he goes and attacks the city of Shechem and he starts killing everyone. Every person in the city he starts to put to death. Isn't that crazy? He even goes out into the fields and he sends his men to see if there's anyone they missed in the fields to kill them too, and once everyone is dead, He goes and he covers the entire city. Just listen to this pettiness, this revenge in his heart, the hate in his heart towards those who were against him. He goes and he covers the entire city with salt in order to poison the ground so that nothing would grow there again. I mean, they're dead. They wouldn't know. Do you see what happens when God is not in control? The kind of crazy things that drives you to what you allow is for other things to start controlling you. That envy starts to control you. That jealousy starts to control you. Like you allow other things to be in the driving seat of your life when God is not in control. (sighs) But some of the leaders of Shechem, they escape the city. And they run to a stronghold, which is a place that you run to for safety. And and they're found in the stronghold altogether at the house of Alberith, and Abimelech gets wind that all the leaders of Shechem are now in the stronghold, and he thinks to himself, all the leaders are in one place, how convenient. So he takes his men and he, he says, run with me quickly, and they run up to the mountain and they start cutting the brushel. They start. Collecting the tumbleweeds. They start getting the thorn bushes and they run back to this stronghold in Albereth, And let's see what they do with that tumbleweed in verse 49. So every one of the people cut down his bundle and following Abimelech, put it against the stronghold. And they they set the stronghold on fire over them so that all the people in the tower of Shechem also died, about 1,000 men and women. Isn't that horrific? He set 1,000 people on fire. I mean, we, we couldn't even imagine what it would be like to hear a 1,000 people burning alive. But there Abimelech is doing it, and, and I would just think, guys, that if you were to witness that, a 1,000 people set on fire, come on. I mean, surely at some point you're watching this and thinking, This is evil. This is wrong. This is disgusting. This is an injustice. Like surely at some point in your heart, you're like, whoa, I've crossed a line. I've set a thousand people on fire. But instead, you know what Abimelech thinks? Cool. Where else can I do this? And he goes hunting for another town to do it again. And it kind of got me thinking, what went wrong with this guy? How did someone become so evil? Like how did someone, how, how does someone do this? It doesn't make any sense. And it reminded me of this conversation that Paul was having in his letter to Timothy. And he encourages Timothy to do something. Because he says, if you don't do this, Timothy, you're in trouble. Your life's in trouble. We read this in the, the first letter in 1 Timothy 1. And at the end of the first chapter in verse 19, Paul says to Timothy, Holding faith, everyone say faith, and good conscience, everyone say good conscience. Hold on to it, Paul's saying, hold on to your faith, hold on to your good conscience, he says, for by rejecting this, some have made a shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Himenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Wow, guys, this is tough scripture to digest, right? What Paul is saying is you need to hold on to your faith. You need to hold on to that good conscience, that little voice that tells you, don't do it. Stop. This doesn't honor God. Like That Holy Spirit voice, you need to hold on because by rejecting it and violating your conscience again and again and again, what you get used to is evil. What you can get used to is sin. You normalize it in your life. You don't think twice about going to watch porn again. I mean, everyone does it. It it doesn't bother you that, you know, God's not in control of your your relationship. It doesn't bother you that you're not honoring God with your money anymore. It doesn't bother you those lies, right, that you're telling. You're just kind of used to it like those bribes. That's just how I do business. Like by continually violating our conscience and rejecting our faith, it can end up, shipwrecking our faith. And then Paul gives two examples of people he handed over eventually to Satan. Their faith had become so shipwrecked. And I think that's what happened to Abimelech. It's all those little yeses of putting himself in control. Eventually his conscience, his faith just became shipwrecked. He had no limit to the evil he would do. And here he is running to this other town, It's like his bloodlust just was not satisfied. And in verse 50, it says this, Then Abimelech went to Thebez, which is another town, and he encamped against Thebez and captured it. But there was a strong tower within the city. Sounds familiar. And all the men and the women and all the leaders of the city fled to it and shut themselves in it. And they went up to the roof of the tower but was this a problem for Abimelech? Well, no, he's just dealt with the tower. In verse 52, And Abimelech came to the tower and fought against it, and drew near to the door of the tower to burn it with fire. And this guy, he, he's just seen that happen to a thousand people, and now he wants to do it again. Evil. Evil. But God had another plan. Verse 53. And a certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head from the top of the tower, right? And crushed his skull. Man, all, you, all the women listening, can you just say hi? Man, in the book of Judges, you guys do not pull punches. Like, there is something like, you do not want to mess with fight. Like, the woman in this book seems to just step up where all the men kind of like... Like like here's a woman, and what does she do? She pushes a stone from the top. They're all on the top of this tower. She pushes a stone, a millstone, and it lands on Abimelech's head. He's defeated by a stone. And why is that important to remember? Because all of his brothers died on a stone. Reminds me of Galatians 6 where it says, Whatever you sow, you will reap. God will not be mocked, it says. I mean, that law of sowing and reaping is as good as gravity, guys. When it is not followed through, when that law is violated, it's like mocking God. <laughs> when it says, you killed your brothers by a stone, I'm going to let a woman kill you with one. So here he is. His head is bleeding. He's on the floor. He's not quite dead yet. And he reaches out and he calls out to someone in verse 54. Then he called quickly to a young man, his armor bearer, and he said to him, draw your sword and kill me, lest they say a woman killed him. Woo, pride. Do you see the pride? Mm, Still there. He still wants to be in control, even on his deathbed. Oh, guys, when when God is not in control, man, we, we get so thirsty for this. And his young man thrust him through and he died. You know, in those days it was humiliating as a warrior to be killed by anyone who wasn't trained, any woman or any child. And God allows Abimelech to be killed in a way that would humiliate him, completely rewrite his story, completely undermine his pride, that he calls his armor bearer and says, drive a sword through me. I wanna try die an honorable death today. I don't wanna be killed by a woman. Verse 55, and when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, everyone, can you all say everyone? Everyone departed to his home. Wow. Hey, the guy's not paying me anymore. Let me go home. Like he left no movement behind. Like he left no legacy, right? There wasn't a cause they were picking up. Like Abimelech's dead Cool. Let's go home. Does God return the evil of Abimelech? Which he committed against his father in killing his 70 brothers. And God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads, and upon them hearing the curse, uh, upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jerubbabel. And that church is how this tragic story ends. And I think within the story of Abimelech, there are many little lessons that you and I can learn. But I think the overarching theme is don't be in control. Don't be in control of your life. When you and I are in the driver's seat, when we are in control, things go bad. It always ends in tragedy. And yet we might find ourselves surrounded by supportive voices, but that doesn't mean God's involved. That doesn't mean God is supporting it. And what you might see around you is death, And loss and friction and strife, guys, those are signs that God is not involved in those areas. And ultimately, when you keep letting go of your faith and you keep violating your conscience, you just get used to your sin. You don't even think about it anymore. It becomes part of your life. You don't question it. You don't fight it. And at the end, the danger is that our faith becomes shipwrecked. And so here's what I want to ask you. What is God not in control of? In your life right now. What are you doing in defiance of God? (laughs) Where have you let go of your faith? Where are you violating your conscience? And you've kind of made peace with it. When you're in control, it ends badly. And I think I want to give you the same encouragement that Paul gave to Timothy. Hold on to your faith and hold on to your good conscience. Look at someone and say, hold on. Hold on, church. You've got to hold on. You've got to hold on. You've got to give God control. Can you close your eyes for a moment? I just want you to think about your life right now. I want you to think about the things that you've been going through and all the different areas of your life. And I want you in this moment just to to stop fighting God, to stop fighting His will. I mean, if you fully obeyed God, what would your life look like? Where have you not given God control? Maybe it's in your time. Maybe it's in your relationships. Perhaps it's in your hobbies, or with your money, with your children your business and your habits don't be an Abimelech will you give God control today give him control with every eye closed I want to invite you to pray prayer right where you are I just want to invite you to pray a prayer that says God I give you control, and you mention whatever it is you've been holding on to. God, I give you control. I give you control. Would you just surrender afresh to Him? Pray that prayer. God, I give you control. You take it, God. You you take the steering wheel. You lead that part of my life. God, I'm not going to lead it anymore. I don't know what it might be in your life, but would you just surrender? Right now, give him control. Thank you. In this room, I just pray that there be a spirit of surrender. Holy Spirit, would you come reveal to us the things in our lives that, that we're not letting you control. Would you come and reveal the things in our life where we are sitting on the throne, where we're in the driver's seat. Come and show us the places, God, where we need to re-surrender to you. Today, we do that right now. We resurrender. God, we give you control. I want to thank you, Lord, for the release in this room, for the release of those watching or listening, Lord. I pray that there would be a release of control. Father God, that we would truly surrender our lives to you. And God, that you would remind us that when we're in control, it just goes bad. That's why you want to be in control, Lord. You you know what is right and you know what is good and you can lead us in a path of everlasting life, God. That's why you want to be in control, Lord, because you love us. You know better. And so, Lord, I want to just speak against pride. I Speak against selfishness, Lord. I speak against strife and conflict and jealousy and envy. Just the death of relationships. I speak against right now in the name of Jesus Christ, Lord. May those things just not be part of our lives anymore. May we surrender to you. I pray this right now. In the name of Jesus Christ. And his church says, Amen.